Well, we begin again tonight by asking our children um, at any age, if, they are, if their parents are comfortable with them coming down front, I would like to invite you to come for a bit of story as we continue to proceed through the life of Joseph, learning about his story and our story. And then after we're done with our story time, then I think you're going to be dismissed if you want to go to the children's hour. Uh, it'll be in the multipurpose room tonight, I think. I'm looking for any cues that that's incorrect. Okay. Yes, you'll go with Mr. Jim uh, back there. So last week we left off right here. And who are we talking about? Do you remember? We're talking about a guy named Joseph, right? And he is in front of the Pharaoh. So here we're going to read. After two years, the king had two dreams, and both of those dreams worried him very much. None of his wise men could tell him what the dreams meant. Finally, the butler remembered me. I shaved and I washed and I dressed and they took me to see the king. I hear that you can tell what dreams mean, the king said. I can't do it, I explained, but God will show me what he wants you to know. I dreamed that seven fat cows came out of the river, the king said. But seven thin cows ate them up, and then I saw seven full heads of grain on a single stalk, but seven thin heads of grain swallowed them up. God is showing you what he is about to do. Egypt will have seven good years, but after all that, seven years will come when nothing will grow. Animals will die, and people will be hungry. Pretty cool what God is doing in Joseph. Help us get ready, the king said, and God has shown you the meaning of my dreams. Maybe he will show you how to prepare our nation for the famine. That was my last day in jail. The king put me in charge of all the food in the whole land. I taught people how to save so that each city had a full a pile of food piled high. The king gave me fine clothes and a gold chain and a chariot, even a wife. And God blessed us with two sons. Whom I loved. Then the seven good years came to an end. The people were hungry. The fields were bare. We could see the bones underneath the skin of the cattle. So I opened up the food bins and sold food to anyone who needed it. And soon people from far away began coming for help as well. It had been many years since I saw my brothers. Are they hungry? I wonder what they will do. Do they still hate me? Does anyone remember their brother Joseph? Then, one day, I saw them walking slowly toward me. and They looked old and thin and very tired. They bowed low and said, Please, sit. Uh, please, sir, we are hungry. May we buy food for our family? Who is your family, I asked. We are twelve brothers, they answered. Benjamin, the youngest, is at home with our father. And the other, I ask, he is gone, they said. I remembered the mocking, the pit, and how they sold me. You are spies, I shouted. Guards, take these men to jail. But I also remembered my dreams from God. Three days later, I brought my brothers out and said, "Come home with you, go home with your food. But if you come back, you must bring your younger brother Benjamin. I will keep Simeon here in jail. 
And then heard them whisper to each other, God is punishing us because of what we did to our brother Joseph. I turned away and I cried. I waited a long time, but soon they, but eventually they came back as I knew they would, and still they did not know me. And this time my brothers looked even older and thinner and more tired. I saw Benjamin and I cried. But I hid my tears. Is your father still alive? I could hardly breathe as I asked. They bowed low. He is alive and well, they said. I gave a big dinner for my brothers. I could see that they were very scared. Next morning, I told my servant to fill their sacks with grain, to put all their money into the sacks, and to hide my silver cup in Benjamin's sack. I said goodbye to my brothers, but I knew they would be back. Later, I told the servant, go after them. Tell them that someone has stolen my cup. Search their bags. Tell them that the man who has my cup will be my slave. Had my brothers changed? I soon would know. They stumbled into the room. Please, sir, let all the rest of us be your slaves, they said. But not the young one. Our father would die of sadness. No, no, Judah begged. Let all my brothers go home. I will be your slave. Joseph is having sort of an interesting time in Egypt now. And God is going to do great things for him. Can I show you guys something? Does anyone know what this is? What do you think, Cole? It's a string? No, it's not a string. What do you think? It's a thing for your Taekwondo. Close. I can see how maybe you could use it. It's actually just a giant piece of latex rubber, and it stretches really far. And do you know what I've been using this for? I've been using this to make my arm stronger that I hurt. I've been using it, and my physical therapist has been using this to make me stronger, just like God's been using Joseph's circumstance to make him stronger. So tonight we're going to talk about getting stronger. Can I ask all of you guys to make big, strong muscles for me? And say, getting stronger. stronger. That's exactly what God wants us to do. Okay? So I'm going to dismiss you now. You can go sit with your parents. Or you can go out straight to the back to the children's hour while I talk with your parents. We continue tonight the third in our series of five sermons over the life of Joseph. Specifically in the context of faith walking. And how that applies the lessons that come from Joseph's story and how they apply to us. We see that Joseph went through many things, but that ultimately he had to practice patience and perseverance, especially in the time of famine. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight as we go through this element of Joseph's story. Now, if you've been with us the entire series, you remember that I told you that there are, in each of our stories, five basic elements Now, you might add or subtract a few things, but these five basic elements exist in every story. And I illustrated that with the story of me injuring my arm while sledding. And the five basic elements are the characters, the conflict, I'm sorry, the plot, then the conflict, then the resolution, and then the ending. And each of those parts has a different role to play in the story. And so tonight, in Joseph's story, we talk about the element of conflict. I think, probably unfortunately, one of the major disservices that has been done in modern 
Christianity is the idea of health, wealth, and prosperity. That if you follow God, He will always bless you. He'll get you the parking spot that's closest to the door. He'll bless your 401k. He'll make your house bigger and your wealth bigger and your barns bigger so you can put more stuff in those barns. And while I do believe it is a blessing to follow God, I think our idea of blessing is one that's somewhat misunderstood. So tonight we're going to talk about these three dilemmas that Joseph faced as he went through his story and how that applies to our story. The first dilemma that Joseph had faced in his story is he had dangerous dreams. The first dream, of course, is the story of the shocks of wheat that were bowing down to his, and then the story of the sun and the moon and the stars that were all bowing down to him. And his brothers hated him for that dream. They even said, as you recall, here comes that dreamer. But they had taken Joseph's dreams and reacted to that, sold him into slavery, and that caused a whole sequence of events in his life to, to happen. Remember when he was in prison, he had an experience with another two dreams, the dreams of a cupbearer and a baker. And those two dreams he interpreted. And when he interpreted them, he said, this is what God is going to do. Please don't forget me. He said that specifically to the cupbearer. And he went back to serve in Pharaoh's court and he forgot Joseph. And as he lie there in that cold, musty dungeon, I imagine Joseph seeing all those dreams more like a nightmare. And then one day someone from Pharaoh's court comes and says, Joseph, hurry, get up, shave, clean yourself up, wash up. You're going to see Pharaoh today. And Joseph says, well, what is this all about? Pharaoh has had a dream. And I can only think, oh, man, another dream? What in the world is God doing? I mean, all these dreams had led really to basically bad things happening in Joseph's life. Man, I'd be scared of those dreams. Because every time those bad things happened, it seemed like God was distant. And that's a difficult thing with a dangerous dream. Sometimes we're not sure where God is in that. In Psalm chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist said, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my saving? Why are you so far from my cries of anguish? I cry out by day, but you do not answer. I cry out by night, but I get no sleep. You see, the dreams that Joseph had encountered along his way, in my mind... I think Joseph is thinking, God, I don't see your plan at work here. You know Psalm 22 because it's what Jesus quoted. And it was written long after Joseph's life. Joseph never would have been familiar with that text. But he was certainly familiar with the sentiment. And so was our Savior. As he hung on the cross and he screamed, Abba, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It is, it is so hard sometimes in the midst of a dangerous dream with all the difficulties that those dreams take you through to remember that God is there and that God is good. I, I know in Christendom we believe God is good. 
we sort of get it wrong. In fact, you probably have heard that saying. Um, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. You probably heard that, right? Makes a nice Christian bumper sticker. Sometimes it's like putting a band-aid, though, on a really severe wound. We don't even think about it fully. I I mean, I hear well-meaning Christians, and they're talking about the circumstances in their life, and they're like, hey, I I got a promotion at work. God is so good. And this relationship that I'm in is finally, it's working. God is so good. And I went to the doctor and and they have good news for us. I'm so happy. Praise God. God is so good. Oh, and we just found news that we're having more children. Twins. No, not me personally. I'm just illustrating. (laughs) God is perplexing. God is so good. Oh my. Now, I do believe that God is good, but I do not believe that God's goodness is linked in any form or fashion to my goodness or the goodness of my circumstances. Because if you believe with all your heart and soul that God is good all the time, then that means God is good when you are sterile. Despite having tried, you do not have any children. That means that when you go to the doctor and they say, get your affairs in order, God is still good. That means when the relationship doesn't work out, God is still good. That means when you get fired unexpectedly, God is still good. You see, God is good all the time. His goodness is infinitely higher and longer and wider and deeper than your life could ever hope to be. And it's not dependent on any part of it. The dangerous part of a dream is questioning whether God is close, questioning whether God is good. But you need to remember that God is good all the time. Whether it's the dream that leads you to the pit or the dream that takes you to the top of Pharaoh's household, God is always good. Now, this dangerous dream, of course, had two meanings. One was there was going to be seven years of abundance and plenty. People would not have any problem finding food. And all the food that there was would be abundant and cheap. But then there would come seven years that were so hard and so nasty that you wouldn't even remember the previous seven. We'd focus only on the high price of food, the land being so dry, And wondering what we're going to do next. I'm glad things like that only happened back in Egypt in ancient stories in the Bible. I'm glad nothing like that ever happens today. That we'd worry ourselves sick over what God was doing and where God was. Dangerous dreams. Well, those dangerous dreams led to the second dilemma from Joseph. And that was a deep drought. Now, Egypt was beginning to get their affairs, uh, their food piled up and stockpiled and preparing for this famine. But the deep drought that was occurring in Joseph's life didn't have to do with the contents of his stomach. It had everything to do with the contents of his heart. There is coming a time of deep drought in your life. If you've not already been through it, there is coming that time when the ground begins to crack, when there is no water, when you are parched. And I'm not talking physically, follow me here, I'm talking 
spiritually. If you're turning your Bibles, you'll turn to Psalm chapter 63, verse 1, where the psalmist said, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My whole being longs for you. I thirst for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see, the famine was one thing that Joseph had to manage. But he had a whole lot of drought going on inside of him. Drought from being betrayed. Drought from being lied about by Potiphar's wife. Drought from being forgotten. And I have to wonder what he wondered about God. God, I I long to know you, but I'm in this foreign land with foreign people and foreign gods. God, I, I, want, I want your presence. I want your blessing. But all I see is, is misery everywhere. It's dry out here, God. I really could use a drink of your presence. I really could use some water from your spirit to be replenished, to be rehydrated, to be filled once again. Dangerous dreams. A deep drought. And then the third problem that Joseph faced, the conflict in his life, was probably the biggest one, the one we overlook the most. A difficult dynasty. And when I say dynasty, you're thinking ducks. Wrong dynasty. But dynasty means a family, a lineage, a heritage, going back. I'm sure Joseph had heard the stories of his father about the dream he had had about his father Isaac and Abraham and the promises that God made about the stars and the heavens and the sands and the seashore. But Joseph wasn't there. He had been betrayed by that family. They had turned their back on him. And because of the famine, they had been driven right back into his life. And from that experience, Joseph had to learn some things about forgiveness. Let me ask you, how easy is it for you to forgive? I I really had to think, when Joseph saw his brothers, he was coming face to face with some very, very serious demons. He He was coming face to face with some resentments that went back 20 years. You have anything like that? You have some difficulties in your dynasty? People that in your own family turned on you, abused you, mistreated you, lied to you, deserted you? Every dynasty has difficulties, as we talked about in the first first sermon on the characters. But I believe that as Joseph went through all his circumstances, every time he was lied about, every time he was turned against, every time he was betrayed, God was strengthening him. It's my first sermon preaching in this series where I've worn a jacket because I don't have to wear a sling. And the reason I don't have to wear a sling is because my physical therapist gave me one of these. He's a guy by the name of Mark. 
And I go into Mark to see Mark once or twice a week. And he'll pull this rubber band out. And he'll say, now I want you to take off your sling. And I want you to stretch your shoulder. And I want you to stretch it till you feel a little pain. But don't push too hard. You're just strengthening the muscle. And then, and I'm sorry, you have to get this view of me. But he'll turn me around and he'll say, now I want you to do this. And he'll say, now I want you to run your hand up your back as far as you can and just stretch that muscle and strengthen it. He's stretching me. That's what physical therapists do, right? They don't want you to stay where you are. They need you to get stronger, to heal, to improve. So they use things to stretch you continually. They use things like dangerous dreams. They use circumstances like difficult dynasties. They even use deep droughts to stretch you. And so his brothers come running in. And where most of us might say, Ha ha, well, now the shoe is on the other foot. Joseph's able to, to let go. He's able to forgive. He's able to do what I think would be a very challenging thing. In, G- in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, Jesus said, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I know God's love is unconditional. His forgiveness is not. At least as far as I can tell from Scripture, there's at least one condition. And it all comes down to that. If you're willing to forgive, God's willing to forgive. But if you won't, God won't. Ah, but Toby, you're you're getting into preaching and and getting into meddling now. You don't know what's been done to me. I could tell you stories about people who have done things to me. I could tell you about betrayal and lies and heartache. I could tell you all the ways I've been wronged. And I would nod my head and say, that sounds tragic. But it doesn't change Matthew 6.14. God is still using you. He's still stretching you. And he's waiting for you to choose. So, three dilemmas that Joseph had. And those lead us to three decisions that Joseph had to make, and, well, that we all have to make. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, the Apostle Paul said, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are exceeding for us an eternal glory, which far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes Not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In every difficulty, you have the opportunity to make a decision to be who God wants you to be. Or you can make the decision to run. I don't know if you have any, how many of you are serious runners. I am definitely not in the category of serious runners. But I, I do run, believe it or not. Josh Herman and I go to the Y a couple times a week. We get on a treadmill, 
and I started an app on my phone called Couch to 5K. I really like the couch part, not so much the 5K. But the couch, or the Couch to 5K app, the way it works is it starts you where you are, which is basically walking slowly. And then each workout that you finish, it says, good job, see you in a couple of days. And you start the next job, the next app, and you notice it's a little different. You're running a little bit more than you were walking. Until now, I, before this injury, got on the treadmill and ran about two miles. Maybe I say, oh, two miles, oh, big deal, oh, Superman there. No. For me, that's an achievement. I'm going to practice for a 5K. Josh is working on a 10K. Some people do half marathons in the Disney Princess Marathon run, half marathon. Some people do full marathons. I used to think that the Ironman was about the, the top of the top as far as how far and fast you could run. But I've actually learned there's a book I'm reading called Born to Run. And there's a group of people that are really, really sick in the head <laughs> called ultra marathoners. And these people are people that regularly, I mean regularly run 50 miles, 75 miles, 100 miles. And the book's actually about this, the, the author who writes, and he's a runner, but he's getting all these injuries, and he wants to research how do people who run all the time, how do they do that without getting injured? And he studies this whole tribe of people down in Mexico called the Tara Umare. The Tara Umare are not just one or two or three or four ultra marathoners. They are a culture of people that live for running 50, 75, 100 miles. And not on flat, even surfaces, on paved roads. They run through the mountains. Every year we go to team camp, and I can barely walk up a mountain, let alone run 100 miles through one. It's an amazing story. But it leads me to ask, how many of you are runners? Now, now I'm not talking about lacing up your your Nikes and, and, and strapping up uh, your tape on your knees and, and heading out on the path. I'm talking about in your, in your life when you have a problem. You see, our culture has made it so easy to retreat behind a screen and shut ourselves off and isolate us. It's made it so easy for us to relocate as opposed to actually dealing with. It's made it easier to fly away from something than to fight through something. Reminds me of the picture you see up above, one of my favorite movies. I don't advocate everything in it, but it's a great story. Forrest Gump starts to run, becomes really famous for running really long distances. I don't know if you remember the reason why he began to run, but the story is really about him and the heroine, Jenny. And he loves Jenny. She's my Jenny. And from the moment that he sees her on the bus as a little girl, he's in love. And the whole story is this intersecting of their stories back and forth. And every time their lives intersect, Forrest, Forrest says, Jenny, please, I love you. Let's be together. And she rejects him. She rejects him. She rejects him. Finally, he can't take no for an answer, so he does what any wise man would do. He proposes to her. And, of course, she says no. And so he says, so I just decided to go running. And he says, I got down to the end of the driveway. I thought I'd go to the end of the road. And then I'd go to the end of the road and I'd run across town. I thought I'd run across town or run across the county. Why not go all the way across the state? Why not run all the way across the country? And you think, oh gosh, that's silly. Why would anybody run so far and so fast from, as opposed to dealing with the issue? People are like that sometimes. 
It's easier to run. It's easier to flee than to fight. And God wants you to be a fighter. God wants you not to give up. As much as I love runners and I'm learning to run, God doesn't want you to run. God wants you to be strong and courageous and not afraid. So, instead of running, let go of these things that you're holding on to. As we come to the end of this series, or this sermon, I want to challenge you with three decisions that you have to make. Number one, don't desert God. Now, I know that seems um, like sort of a duh thing to say in a sermon, right? But God doesn't want you to desert Him because He hasn't deserted you. Regardless of what you think, God has not deserted you. He said to the prophet Isaiah, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Therefore, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God has your back. That does not mean things will work out perfectly. God has your back. That does not mean you will not have troubles and trials and difficulties. But don't give up on God. He has not given up on you. He does not call people who are equipped. He always equips those who are called. And He is equipping you. Decision number two. Remember that deserts aren't desertion. Limitations 3, 26-28 is not a verse you'll see crocheted on a quilt somewhere. It's kind of a hard verse. To be quite honest, Lamentations is a hard book. And he says this, It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. If you are in a time of trial, if you are in the desert, so to speak, the wilderness, you are in good company. Because God often uses the quiet to prepare you for the storm that lays ahead. The question is, are you willing to go there? Don't think because you're in the desert you've been deserted. No, God has taken some of his best men and women over the years to the desert for a time. Be it Joseph or Moses or Jesus. The desert may be waiting for you. And finally, don't desert others. I know it's popular to say in our culture, a lot of people like to say, I love Jesus, but not the church. But if I could sugarcoat it a little bit, I think that's the most short-sighted, self-centered, and selfish way to view Christianity. Because God did not design human beings to be alone. From the beginning, from Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. He had the whole nation of Israel together. He has the church, which is the bride of Christ. And you want to divorce her. The church is the body of Christ and you want to rip a part off and see if it can live. Nah, it's foolish. You need the church. You need other people. That's why God has us come to a common table. The table of communion. That many different people, all different parts can come together as one. Now, the difficulty with that is when you have lots of people, sometimes you have problems. No, scratch that. You always have problems. 
And if you're going to have a body of Christ with imperfect people, you're going to have to have some forgiveness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. If you're turning there, it says, Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If anyone has any grievances against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I know it's easy to run. I know it's easy to put people out of your mind. But guys, look around you for a second. If at least 90% of you in this room are serious about Christianity, man, you're going to be spending eternity together. If you've got a problem with somebody, you better get it worked out. Because God has a sense of humor, and I think he'll put your mansion right next to theirs. So three decisions. Well, I wanted to finish up talking about faith walking and try to give you some sort of illustration to tell you and show you what it means. So I decided to talk about hockey. Um, Tyler does not play hockey, but a few weeks ago, some friends said, hey, they're having try hockey for free day at the ice rink. I never heard of such a day, but I thought, hey, what could it hurt? I thought, well, there is one small problem. Tyler's never played hockey before, and Tyler's never been ice skating before. But it'll be okay. Take him out there. He was excited. And I tried to tell him how it works, and we got there a little early so we could watch some of the hockey players who were already practicing and how they did things. And, man, he was excited. He was really excited about getting dressed up in all the pads and the helmet and everything. And, and then he figured out what hockey was all about. And to me, it reminds me a lot of what it means to walk by faith. So, let's see, if David, if you'll click on that video, it should show us. You can probably tell real quickly here. There we go. You'll catch on which kid is my son. Now, moms hate that I'm showing this video. Why would you let your baby go out there and get hurt? And dads are sitting there going, that's funny. (laughs) That's how you train a child right there. Listen, I think for a lot of us, faith is this very intimidating thing. Because we hear about people like Abraham and Isaac and Moses and David and Joseph and all the greats. And we know that there are people... In our church that are like the greats, right? Our elders are are the greats. Steve Tandy's a great. And we see them and we go, man, man, that's just so, how do they do what they do? Ah, It's just so unbelievable. And we get out there on the ice of faith and we just feel like Tyler, you know? We're just barely hanging on, barely holding on upright. And I was sitting there and I took like 50 pictures and several videos. And I was just laughing. I was laughing so hard I was crying. Like, you guys... So he comes over, and I just pat him on the back, and I got down close to him, and I said, Tyler, buddy, you're doing great. He's like, Dad, I'm falling all over the place. (laughs) I said, Tyler, it is not the falling that worries me. What worries me is if you wouldn't get back up. You have a very courageous heart, son, because you're going to fall many times. The key is, get back up. Yeah. He didn't know I wasn't talking about hockey right then, but 
that's the message I want to leave you with is keep walking, keep skating. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You're going to have all sorts of difficulty. But get right back up because God has great things in mind for you. And I want you to be a part of it. If you have any need, if you're ready to walk by faith, come as we stand and sing.